0: Hello babes and trolls, kids and queers, welcome to Millenniagram, the Enneagram podcast your pastor definitely won't be recommending. Together we are here to learn a little self-deprecation, a little integration, and together dig ourselves out of our goddamn ditches. Let's get into it. <laughs> All right, babes and trolls, so if you've been catching my drift the last few episodes, I'm sure you've picked up on the fact that I've been trying to kind of test the boundaries of our common understanding of the Enneagram and help us build a more nuanced understanding of how personality actually develops and how we experience it, how we react and respond, how we make meaning out of our stories, etc. Um, I wrote all that shit about survival stories in the book, Millenniagram, without really properly understanding what the fuck I actually meant at the time. Isn't that wild, how things work? It just goes to show that sometimes bullshitting is just actually speaking from intuitive knowledge, and that's on fucking period. Um, So I'm really excited to share this episode with you. Um, I don't talk about Enneagram with our guest that much, but I think that you can kind of connect the dots. Um, I believe in you. And if not, I would love to have those conversations. Um, I think this is an episode that will prompt further discussion. But I'm interviewing Justin Sinceri, who is a marriage and family therapist who also runs the Polyvagal Podcast. And honestly, that has kind of been my gateway drug into understanding polyvagal theory, um, which we'll get into more and like definitions of that in the episode. Um, I know there's a lot of big words and like new ones that I honestly didn't know how to define properly, didn't know if I was using them properly. So I'm excited to um, kind of let you hear from a professional, from an expert on those things, um, and then sort of get into what that could look like for us, um, understanding ourselves in our own unique stories and unique experiences. So Anyway, um, I cannot wait to share this interview with you, and I can't wait to see what y'all make of it. Let's get into it.
1: Hey, my name is Justin Sincere, I go by him and his. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist currently working in a public school system working with teenagers. Uh, absolutely love it. And I also do something called the Polyvagal Podcast, which focuses on the polyvagal theory and really applying it to daily life.
0: That is amazing. Um, I found you through the Polyvagal podcast, and I've been absolutely hooked since I discovered it. But I only discovered it a couple months ago, and so I'm going back and trying to listen to everything so I can oh, <laughs> sort of catch up it's a lot. in the process. It is. Um, you put a lot of great content out Thank there. Thank you. Um, if you could, just for our listeners, um, so on, on this podcast, I talk a lot about... Um, it started as a place to kind of discuss the Enneagram because that was a personality typology that I had a lot of experience with. And then as the conversation has kind of, um, continued, we've taken it more into neuroscience and trauma and what's going on in the brain, um, and how can we use that information to heal ourselves, relate well to one another, etc. Um... So I stumbled upon the polyvagal theory, and I've been doing a lot of my own research. Could you give us a quick, like, few sentences that sort of sum up um, the basic, the base idea (laughs) there?
1: The basic, basic would be that the polyvagal theory, as I understand it, is the underlying science of how mammals, but, you know, as human beings, we're more concerned about that, how human beings connect to each other, but also how we respond to danger. And mm, to take it right. one step, that's a basic idea. Take it one step further, if I may. It lays out that there are three distinct neural platforms. And mm. these three neural platforms are safety, the flight-fight sympathetic system. And the third one is the shutdown dorsal vagal system. Um, and these three neural platforms are active depending on levels of safety, danger, or life threat. And it's a little. It does get more complex, but that's the basic, basic idea.
0: So you talk about um, what you call the polyvagal ladder, which includes those three kind of realms. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: that's a concept a metaphor from Deb Dana because the uh, those three platforms are hierarchical, meaning they evolved within us in a hierarchical system. So mm. human beings, the social engagement system, the safety system at the very top of the ladder. That's the newest one, and it's really for um, mammals, in particular. So we have that at the top. It was the last to evolve within us. Was the, so we have the, at the top of the ladder, and below that right. is the flight fight system, and below, below that is the shutdown system. And it's a ladder because you have to climb down. And a lot of times, I think most of the time, when we think about trauma and how we respond to traumatic events, we look at it as if people choose how to handle these situations. And the polyvagal theory lays out that if we can't be safe, then we go into our flight-fight behaviors, but specifically flight, then fight. And then okay. if we cannot run away, if we cannot fight, the last stop would be shutdown. And we can mix these up, but the uh the three basic neural platforms are safety, flight, fight, flight, then fight, and then shutdown. So it, it's a it's a sequence of events, not like a menu of options, I like to say.
0: Right, And the the
1: ladder is the metaphor for that. You climb down the ladder, shut down to the bottom, but also you have to climb back up the ladder. You you can't go from like a shut down, very depressive state to all of a sudden like I'm good. You have to climb back up the ladder. So if you're in a shut down place, you actually have to go into your fight energy. Not that you have to fight someone. Don't do that. But you have to like fight. You have to go into the fight energy, and then into flight, and then back into your safe and social, uh, social engagement system.
0: Interesting. So you can't jump right back from shutdown to safety.
1: Not that I've seen. No. And and, okay. and when I, when I do work with I work with teens um, who, you know, they a lot of trauma with the kids that I work with, and the I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. And 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 i worked with a lot of parents too, and same thing, uh, a lot of generational kind of stuff. Uh, but when they come out of, oh, so before we, I go on, I should say that these three neural platforms can become, I'll say chronic, like we can get stuck in these states. Uh, oh. So we can actually get stuck in this flight, fight, sympathetic energy. We can get stuck in the shutdown place. And that really has a lot to do with mental health diagnoses that, you know, people like, like I give to others, you know, as far as diagnosing. Sure. Um, sure. But yeah, the kids I work with that are in more of a shutdown, chronic day-to-day place. It looks like it is. I think it is flat out depression. It's a very numb, mm. can be very dissociative, uh, gray, foggy kind of place to be. And no, they don't go from that all, the, all of a sudden they're like in their safe and social state. They can do it through the course of an hour of therapy. But it's, it's sure. something we have to kind of build the capacity to. It's usually not like within the first session. Um, so it's something we build towards. And little by little by little we get back into there. But they have to go from shutdown into their... Like I see that like fight energy come back within them. It's pretty neat. So
0: you almost have to reactivate them in some way. In a way.
1: And and the way I do that as a therapist is uh, we call it co-regulation. And uh, like therapists have all these wonderful techniques we're taught. But really, as long as we're safe people and we provide safety cues, um, as long as we listen, we're non-judgmental. I mean, all those basic fundamental therapy things. If we can do that, that gives all these cues of safety to the client. And mm. the client may not be able to pick up on those right away. There is some compromise there. But eventually they'll, they'll pick up on smiles. They'll pick, pick up on vocal prosody, which is like the sing song quality, the, the ability to use the full range of voice. So they'll, like when you ask a question, like your, your voice picks up at the end, right?
0: Right, <laughs> right. You, can, you right.
1: can use a full range of voice to express how you feel. Now, if I go into a super like monotone voice, that shows that I don't have access to my social engagement system. And that if, if that's true, I'm in a flight fight place or maybe a shutdown place, which means I'm potentially not a safe mammal. so as a therapist, I really have to be in my safe and social state and give those safety cues, and then that's a big, big piece of why therapy is helpful, and then the client can start working their way up their ladder, but they have to be in a safe place with a safe person and know what to do with that energy when it comes back.
0: Now what is the what what is it about um you know, kind of speaking in a tone that shows that you're not in your safe and social state. What is it about that that sort of like sends danger cues to someone else? Why are, why can we get activated or, or feel the need to push away from that person?
1: It's, it seems like this um, instinct, we call it neuroception. Neuroception is when you pick up on danger and safety cues outside of your conscious awareness. And, okay. and if, if, I, if I'm not able to use my facial muscles, if I can't smile, if my eyes don't have those crinkles, like if, if I, you know what I'm talking about? Like a serial killer or a sociopath,
0: like their <laughs> right. eyes are
1: very distinctive, right? And it's this creep. They
0: kind of have the same expression yeah. in them, be- regardless right. of their facial expression. Because they
1: don't have access to their social engagement. Now, they might be able to fake it, but you, like that typical sort of like look, you know what I'm talking about. Like right. where you don't have a lot of expression in the eyes. If your eyes don't have that capability, the muscles around the eyes. If you can't, if you don't have the capability of smiling, like a real smile that causes like eye crinkles. If you don't have the full range of voice, it's this instinctual level, biological level of is a cue of danger. And think about if uh, you know someone gets angry, their voice drops, like it gets deeper, right? They don't, sure. they, don't, they, they yeah. lose that sing-song equality, and it gets deeper. If someone's in a more of an anxious flight place. Their voice, I I think, gets a little bit more high pitched, and not sing songy, but more panicky, if that makes sense. Right, right. And, but they lose so there's
0: less modulation. Yeah, they, it's right. just like pretty consistently up.
1: If they lose right, they lose that uh, that in between place. And when you're in a safe and social place, you can use the full range of your voice. And someone who's in shutdown has a very low, very monotone uh, voice. Not a dangerous, aggressive one, but just like uh, the word blank pops in my mind, but it's like just very numb. Yeah. O- on the extreme. I on think the extreme. We called
0: end. that, in social work, we called it like flat
1: affect. Yeah, okay, there you go. Yeah, so the the flat affect is, is yeah, right. That, that's so the, the full like uh, facial flat affect, the, the, yes, the right. lack of the vocal range. Um, so these are cues of where someone's at. On their polyvagal ladder, like where it basically, if someone's able to smile, like when I see my clients smile, if they can make eye contact with me, that tells me that they are accessing their safety system. They're accessing the top of their polyvagal ladder, and that's
0: okay. more.
1: Like ideally, we want to want more and more and more and more get there.
0: Interesting. It is. Yeah. It makes me think of. It makes me think of how um, you know how frustrated we get when people tell us to smile, right. and obviously that's not. <clears throat> That's not a helpful way of kind of inducing a smile. No. But it may but it makes sense why another person looking at someone would be looking for that safe and social state in, in totally. the person they're speaking to. And it's
1: with. it's not a conscious thing. Um, right. when someone's not safe, you kind of feel it. As long as you're in your safe and social state, you'll pick up on like, oh, there's something wrong. Like this this is iffy. In and, and, right. and that, that flight energy you'll feel it or you'll feel this like pit in your stomach and that's that shutdown thing like kicking in so you'll feel a response if you're more in your safe and social state and can accurately detect danger cues now what sadly what happens is people who exist more down the ladder in a flight fight or shutdown place um their ability to accurately detect safety or danger is compromised and i don't think right. it's not a permanent thing but if nothing else changes, it it kind of looks like a permanent thing. But really, if you're existing like a flight anxious energy place, your abil- you kind of see danger everywhere, right? Right. So your ability to detect accurately who is safe, what situations are safe, can get compromised, and that lands you in some like you miss red flags, and that lands you in some very very scary situations. That, with the teens that I work with, I mean, the red like they're not picking up on red flags anymore.
0: Sure. Well, and I think even. Like, if you're around somebody unsafe and that unsafe person happens to be a parent, then you need that person, but they're also unsafe. So I can imagine that the cues would get confused as
1: well. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't have anything to add to that, but, like, yeah, you're absolutely right. We have to have uh, a parent, really should be the safest people in our lives who are able to build a solid foundation of loving trust and attachment with us. And if that doesn't happen... We don't get to, I guess I do have something to add to it. <laughs> we, we don't get up to our the top of our ladder into our safety state. We kind of always mm. exist in this defensive place, like a flight, a fight, or a shutdown place, if we don't have that solid, predictable, safe, healthy attachment.
0: So what would you say to someone who, for whom, like, uh, danger or lack of safety actually felt familiar to where they almost, it seemed like they seek out those situations.
1: You know, my mind just went a whole bunch of places. <laughs> <laughs> if they're aware of it, like if they're aware that that's their pattern, that's that's so big. <laughs> like the, the, the mm. awareness. And mm-hmm. if you're aware of it, that tells me that there might be a little curiosity about making a change. And I, I would think the first thing to do is to find is to learn more uh that could be the first thing to do it, i like there's tons of things they can do to help themselves self-regulate or find safe people and but really it's like if, if that awareness is there like build on that and then the next step might be to learn more about trauma learn more about the polyvagal theory uh learn more about like red flags and whatnot but it like that awareness is so big mm. it's so huge because like if you don't have that change it's a lot more difficult to come by
0: right you know, so I would say um, I have probably a, a pretty high percentage of listeners who um, either experience or are close to someone who experiences um, what's known as complex PTSD, um, just because I I speak to a, a large group of people who have kind of come out of um, fundamentalism um, oh, in okay. a variety of religious settings. Um, and I kind of... So my my interest in polyvagal theory kind of arose from my um, studying, okay, what does this diagnosis mean? Um, how can I begin to start being proactive about the healing process there? And it feels like the polyvagal theory is an important puzzle piece in that process. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. Can you speak more to how that could be helpful? As far
1: as CPTSD in particular? Correct. Uh, it's, yeah, polyvagal theory. Like I said, it's the science that underlies Everything. So if you can understand the science, like even like the fun, like just the basic level stuff we're talking about, if you can understand like where you're at on the ladder, that's a huge step forward in your own recovery. Um, And what I, so you you mentioned the word healing and I have no problem with that, but I like to use the word stuck. And because I don't think people are broken. I don't think people are defective. Mm. And it's like what it comes down to. I don't care what word you use, but for me in particular, the word stuck is it's, just,
0: it's less permanent.
1: So it is. If you're stuck, that means you're moving forward. And, yeah, and I fully yeah. I fully believe that people have that within them and that they are moving forward. Now, a lot of stuff gets in the way, and I'm not saying it's easy, but that inner drive, I don't think it ever goes away completely. So I, I, the word right. stuck to me is like it's a very temporary thing and that we have it within ourselves eventually to get unstuck. So I, I like to say mm. hashtag
0: stuck, not broken. <laughs> I really like yeah. that. I think that'll be helpful to, well, it's helpful to me being, you know, a rather melodramatic person, and I can tend to sort of over-identify with past pain and kind of keep myself back there versus trying to move forward. So, I like no. I like the stuck versus broken. Totally. And, Thank you for and that. And in no way
1: are you alone in that. I mean, I think that what you just said applies to, uh, how, like, how many people, like, everybody, right? On some, on some <laughs> right. level. On some level. Right. So... When it comes to CPTSD, let, let's th- let's talk about like what's happening there, just in very very general terms. Mm. So, according to the polyvagal theory, there are two paths to trauma—not two sources, but two paths. Okay. okay. So, there's the first one is like you survive something, and that could be a car crash, it could be a sexual assault, it could be a war environment. Um, right. You know, you, you survive a thing, and that leaves you in this stuck a uh, sympathetic arousal kind of energy. And that, to me, more closely resembles PTSD. Like, you, you survived a thing.
0: An event. An event. Yeah.
1: And you're left with that event's feelings in you, just to put it super uh, generally. Sure. But the other sure. path to trauma is uh, a chronic disruption of connectedness. And that would that speaks to the piece of us that is constantly looking for safety and right. and must have safe people in order to develop fully. That must have like safe people to reach the top of our of their of our polyvagal ladders. And when that drive that bi- like it's a biological imperative, when that is constantly cut off, that leaves someone in a defensive state, whether it's a flight fight place or a shutdown place. Mm. So that there's two paths and to me that constant chronic disruption of connectedness is more of the CPTSD flavor and of course there's some gray areas and there's some overlap and it's not that clean all the time but in general that's right. how I view things that's how, what, what makes sense to me so that's that, that constant cutting off of connection whether that be through neglect or some sort of abuse where your, your, your drive to connect especially to a parent is constantly cut off that leaves you in this, uh, stuck defensive place, flight bite Hmm. shutdown.
0: What, what has been interesting for me as I've kind of started to study the polyvagal ladder, um, is that I have historically identified less with, um, the fight and flight state, um, because I grew up in a setting where, um, there was never, there was never any safety to be found. So at a very young age, I internalized, there was nowhere to run and there was no one that I was allowed to fight. Mm. Um, and so it's been difficult for me as an adult to kind of realize, okay, I'm very familiar with shutdown because, you know, depression and all that. And I'm very, I'm also familiar with being in a safe and social state, but kind of and So I know I must experience the fight and flight somewhere, but it's it has felt less obvious to me. So yeah. I'm kind of trying to find that energy again. It
1: can be. It's, it's, uh, and sometimes it's hard to identify if you're going down the ladder or up the ladder. Sure.
0: And, and <laughs> yeah. I think
1: kind of what you're speaking of, tell me if I got this wrong, but it sounds like, not just for you, but for in general. Yeah. That being stuck in these states can last for a very long time. Definitely, and climbing your way out of that can be very difficult, extremely difficult, and Mm -hmm. and we we it's I have found through therapy that the what's most helpful is to do it a little bit at a time, because when you come out of that shutdown place into your fight uh, energy, Mm -hmm. and really it's I'd rather I like to call it power, like it's not fight. I mean it's there for like pushing off a predator or whatever. Sure. we can totally reframe that as power. Like you have this inner power within you to kick mm. ass basically, like to accomplish things. Right. And it feels like, it could feel like this really aggressive motivation. It could also feel like anger. So it's, it's yeah. like this stuff comes up. And what's interesting is when we say, when it's, like, if we feel angry, like that's a bad thing. Or if we feel that aggression, that's a bad thing. Now, if you're going to go harm someone, yeah, that's, I'm not with you. Right. But if <laughs> right. if you can feel that energy return, First off, it's super normal. It's supposed to happen, but if you can own that, like that's where change can really happen. Like if you can own that and really point it in the right direction, so if doing that all at once is super overwhelming and it's um, it can lead to like uh, being overwhelmed or panic. But if you can do that a bit at a time and just notice it and kind of hold it, and then go back to like a safety resource and then come back to the pain a little bit and then back like that's that's called pendulation. We kind of go back and forth. And what that does okay. is that it builds the person's ability to to tolerate that flight fight energy as it comes back, or as it mm-hmm. as it maybe as it emerges for the first time. But it, it builds if, if you can t- tap into it and then come back, tap into it and come back. It builds the, the capability of noticing and holding that stuff and, and letting it run its course when it does emerge. If that makes sense.
0: Totally. It almost sounds like uh, using a muscle. To, oh yeah. That you haven't used yeah. often. Yeah. So you just do a couple reps and then maybe you come back to it the next day or, yeah. uh, or
1: once a week in therapy. And so, right. so in therapy, when I see that my clients are like that energy's coming back, it used to freak me out. Cause I thought it was, it was bad. I thought it was like, Oh no, they got angry and <laughs> right. something I did or they did or whatever. Like it all fell to hell. Right. But now when I see that, coming I'm like oh yes here we go here it is right and I I can bring attention to it and they instead of me having my own sympathetic energy of like oh my god I just messed everything up now my sympathetic energy is I can own that and be excited and I can feel that you know it's more playful than it is terrified
0: (laughs) yeah so
1: they can feel that like when their energy comes back and they can see that I'm with them and I'm still good like I'm in my safe and social state that's the anchor. That's that's the container of their emotion. Like I got you. We're good. Let's go. You know what <laughs> I mean? And like that. And then it can come back once they're ready for. It, not right off the bat. But like once we've done some work and we've noticed, like we can, we can do like a safety resource, like a safe place they can go in their head or something they can hold on to to kind of ground themselves. Like mm. once we have these things in place and there's a solid therapeutic rapport, then then like when that energy comes back, like let's do it. We we got this. And I, I'm just like I'm excited along with them and it's um it's pretty amazing to see that happen and to see someone emerge from their shutdown state into their fight place to be able to yeah. own it, hold it, see it course through them and then to see the people the person the client go to flight and then into their safe and social state and they kind of like look around for the first time and they make eye contact with me and I feel this impulse to go hi, like like reintroduce myself. The- <laughs>
0: there you are. <laughs> yeah,
1: like, and it's 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 like the coolest thing to see the color come back in their cheeks, and to see them smile and be able to hold eye contact and to say like, "Have you ever felt like this before?" And they go, "No, never. I've never felt like this before." It's incredible.
0: Wow, that's really that's really cool. Yeah, um, I'm interested in. Um, I know for me, kind of rediscovering that fight energy has been difficult. Um, because, because I have so little control over or experience with it, I, I started to describe it to my therapist as seeing red. Like I, I feel, you know, this energy coursing through my hands. I feel shaky. My face is red and I feel like I have no control over what I do next, which is a scary feeling. Um, how do you encourage your students or your clients to sort of, um, befriend that scary call it anger call it agency how do you it's uh encourage them to harness it i guess
1: it's not so for me it's not exactly a cognitive harnessing and understanding and that's it like that's important sure but it's a noticing and being able to hold and, and notice and be in like it's a it's a mindfulness thing and it's being in the moment, and what you described, okay. and what happened, what I see a lot is that when that stuff happens, it's new and it's different, and it's it's all this sympathetic energy. And rather than right. being able to to know and to be able to have the experience of holding that and sitting with that energy, that when you when someone feels it, their thoughts turn to oh my god, too much, and I'm gonna harm someone, or this is scary, and like the and then it's like it becomes fear based rather than this process of mindfully respecting and loving and owning these feelings that are coming back.
0: Hmm. You know what I mean?
1: So part of it is like a new story that it's, this is, yeah, it feels scary. You know what I mean? So we have to cognitively kind of know that, but through the process of little by little that we experientially in our body, we have felt this little by little by little and cognitively, we know this is coming, like maybe a big surge. And that's kind of what I'm seeing so far with my clients is that little Mm. by little by little, and then there's like a big surge, but they're ready for it and they can handle it and, um, we get, you know, get through the other end. So there's like this cognitive understanding, but that's different than being able to actually sit with your feelings and your emotions. You know what I mean? (laughs)
0: Definitely. Definitely. And
1: that's, that's a, that's a huge task. It's not easy. The first time I did my own like meditation where I really looked, looked inward and what sensations were there and allowed some sympathetic energy, actually a lot of it to come back it scared the hell out of me. It was, but I knew, I knew enough, you know what I mean? Based on all the stuff I was learning from Peter Levine, Dr. Mm. Porges, that when that sympathetic energy kicked in, my thoughts went to, I'm having a heart attack. I wasn't having a heart attack, but, but what happens, our thoughts, our thoughts change based on what state we're in. So I was able to notice that my thoughts shifted and my impulse, oh. my impulse was to open my eyes and get the heck out of that state, but but mm. cognitively I knew like no 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 I have to stay with this I can do this you know what I mean, and I was yeah
0: yeah. And so
1: rather than running from that energy, I embraced it, and rather than listening to and I'm not saying it's just easy, but listening to the thought <laughs> of it's a heart attack, I noticed the thought and I was like I see you, but I got this you know what I mean and I just fully believed myself to be able to do that and I felt this huge like surge of energy coursed through me it was was amazing i've done that a few times and um just through meditation Um, but it, it, it does take a lot to be able to sit with it
0: are you a fan of nudes yes this is a trick question um i never thought that i would be saying this but queer twitter is literally the only place to be like if you're not there like what are you doing um And when I was fundraising to try and keep this podcast alive, um, everybody contributed their nudes and what we call lewds and hofos um, to get this show back on the motherfucking road, you feel? So um, if you would like to get in on the fun... Um, I'm kind of changing up what the Patreon looks like, but um, I definitely know that you're going to have access to content before everyone else. And number two, um, lots of sexy pictures. They're not up there yet, but we're going to be working on that in the months to come because I couldn't just do that shit the one time. Um, And then... Honestly, you're going to have, like, unedited interviews, so you're going to hear the shit that we had to cut um, because it was maybe fascinating and fucking classic and brilliant, but, um, you know, people have short attention spans, except for you, because you um, have a bigger brain. That's not science. Um, But please join us on Patreon. Um, If you just search patreon.com slash millenniagram, join our posse, $1, $5, like whatever you can do. um, It really keeps our show on the road. The majority of our patrons are $1 and $5 donors, and I fucking love that shit because it means that um, capitalism is sucking us all dry, and yet we are doing You know, giving our widows fucking might to keep alive the things that we love. And I'm grateful to contribute to one of the things that you love. Let's continue writing this story together. Patreon.com slash millenniagram Go find it, hun. I know. Being able to observe, like, an emergency cue, like I'm having a heart attack, rather than immediately react to it, requires... A level of mindfulness I don't think I've yet discovered it's, but I'm excited to know it's out there
1: <laughs> I think so and um but yeah that's what it is and it's I think observe is a good word for it mm-hmm. rather than being so like entangled and it's interesting that I thought meditation was about detaching your thoughts and
0: right you know what
1: I mean but it's not in the for me for me just for all say for me yeah but when I'm doing my meditation I'm fully cognitively present and somatically present, like I'm in my body, you know? And it's this, For I'll say odd sensation. I don't like to judge it, but I'll say odd sensation <laughs> where I feel like, and everyone's experience is different, but I feel like I'm in like a can.
0: Oh, interesting. <laughs> I no longer
1: feel my limbs exactly. I feel all of it all at once and can witness my thoughts, but it's like this other... I don't like to say otherworldly consciousness. That doesn't describe it accurately. But it's this pure, like, observing and noticing. And part of that observing mm. and noticing is the thoughts that go through my head. And it's not like, get out of here. It's, oh, okay, I see you. You know what I mean?
0: I can be present with totally. that.
1: For, for me yeah. at least, yeah. Wow. So I I've, I've um, found that to be really helpful. And even, like, little bursts to just kind of, like, yeah. like, tonight I was, um, I went into my office here. And I sat in the dark, and I sat and breathed, and closed my eyes a little bit, and just through breath, you can help yourself kind of re-regulate and and get back up to your safe and social state. There's lots of ways to do that, but for me, sitting in a dark place—I don't know why—but that for me, no,
0: it's so helpful to me too. Yeah, okay, too. All
1: right. Yeah.
0: The removal of like outward yeah. stimuli is very helpful, um, and I just like to not not like too claustrophobic of a space, but. Yeah. I'm currently, I'm currently sitting in a dark closet and I'm really enjoying it. (laughs) So, so that's, I totally get it. But that's how
1: people can, can begin this process is like you said, I'm enjoying it. Right.
0: Mm.
1: But the question is, how do you know you're enjoying it?
0: Mm. Interesting.
1: Sorry, I hit the wrong button there. But yeah, the, the, but it's like we say I like okay. this, I don't no, like you're this, fine. but how do you know? Like what in your body is telling you?
0: What are the sensations you, I'm feeling yeah. that tell me that? Oh, right. funny. I don't know and if I ever feel, asked myself that.
1: But that's where that's where you're I, not just you, but that's where you really like learn more about yourself is what things are you pulled toward? Mm. What things are you pushed away from? And it's not just I like or dislike, but it's this bodily sensations this feeling of like repulsion or magnetism or and, and there's so many different ways to describe these things it's it's really a very subjective experience but uh but rather than just saying I like you know going to the gym it's like okay but how do you know what's the experience of liking that for you you know what I mean
0: right I mean so, I, and then, I think of like um for me, exercise means, like, being able to breathe better so I can, like, right. I feel my lungs expanding more. Um, I'm trying to think of what else <laughs> just off the top of my head.
1: Right, right. No, it's a hard question. Yeah. Like, it, it requires that you're not just you. <laughs> so I'm not trying to just No, you. no, but I get it. It requires that we're mindful of what we're doing. And I, I say throughout the day, not that it's, you know, 100%, but to consciously choose to be more mindful in the moment. And you know what I like to draw. So when I'm drawing, I make the decision to be mindful of the experience of drawing. And I notice my breathing change. Mm. but I also I'll also do things like what's it like when I draw faster, or when I sketch and then refine slowly? What, what How does it feel to do the markers first and then the colored pencil? Like all these little pieces, like what's what's my inner experience of doing these things? right and if you and if you can enter like just notice, if you can notice these pieces, that will actually allow you to start climbing your ladder little by little by little, and I'm talking about like, what does the paper feel like in your fingers to really notice
0: right. the sensation?
1: You know what I mean? To really notice the sensation of of the paper in your fingers, and I I know what kind of paper I'm pulled towards. It's this like brand, uh, it's brown tone. It's called a toned tan paper, I think, nine by twelve size. Like I know this feels Is it feels the texture?
0: Right. Is it the weight of it? what is
1: it both of those things but also the way that the markers act on it the way the colored pencils oh, okay. lay on top of it Okay. and it it really makes the color pop and when color pops my i just i come alive inside like it just <laughs> i feel my sympathetic energy be like just get excited you know it's very playful for me yeah so so like all these little things like what do you pull toward what do you you know being in a dark closet there's something about that that your nervous system is like this feels right for now
0: right it's funny that you mentioned that about drawing because I, I, I tried a similar thing. One of my many day jobs is being a barista and it can get very hectic and you know, you're dealing with unhappy sure. customers and all that. Um, but I tried to challenge myself a couple of times these past few weeks. Um, I'm, I'm making drinks and I'm on a schedule or whatever, but what about, um, you know, I really enjoy it when I can make a drink well and I know that it's well executed. I know the person that I'm handing it off to is going to enjoy it. So I started trying to really be present with each of the sensations nice. involved in, like, you know, steaming the milk and then, you know, pulling the shots and, and just feeling how it felt in my body to do something well and enjoy that. Mm. And it yeah. made it so much more fun. Um, but it, yeah. it also made me aware of how many sensations every second I'm not paying attention to it's constant oh my goodness all the time and so then I would notice that my entire back would be seized up when I would get stressed on the floor at the at the coffee shop but I Mm. I'm only now just starting to notice that but I'm sure that it's been happening for months or years um I just didn't even notice and I would get home from work and oh man my back is sore why is that happening but it's I'm holding it I don't know I'm, no, no, I, I, I'm. <laughs> I'm totally getting off with on you. a tangent, but um, no, just trying to be more present with um, all of those sensations. Yeah, and it really made the experience a lot more pleasurable. Really,
1: it does. And like right now, as you're talking, I was asking myself, "Am I in the moment?" <laughs> <laughs> and, and I realized, like, I'm holding onto my foot. I have my uh, my warm, fuzzy winter socks on. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm just like noticing how. I'm like (laughs) touching my foot (laughs) and really noticing how it feels and it's like how it feels in my hand, how it feels, how the warm fuzzies feel in my palm as I, you know, rub it. Um, And it's, it's, uh, it's different than just sitting here holding my foot. It's a much different experience, you know?
0: Right, right.
1: And it really, it forces you to be in the moment. And I think when we, even just like day to day life, it's so easy to get out of the moment. It's so easy to get wrapped up in stresses and worry about the next day or what went wrong that day, and that's just day to day life. But surviving a trauma, like it's it's super hard to be in the moment. It can be it can be very very hard to be in the moment. Yeah. And so there's tons of stuff that we miss out on, like a warm fuzzy sock. But there's also things inside of us that we're pulled toward that are cues of safety that feel not just like a relief, not just better, but that feel safe. You know what I mean?
0: Right, right.
1: Not just like, like I know drug use feels, like people say it's a relief, but that's different than feeling safe. That's different than feeling like actual joy.
0: Yeah.
1: So there's things that we do that are are a relief or a distraction, I'll say, but that aren't really a safety cue. Like it's a distraction to be on your phone at nighttime, but it doesn't actually
0: Would you call those coping mechanisms?
1: I think it's a fair place to, yeah, I think you're coping with, you're coping with the stress, you're coping with the flight by energy that's within you. Mm. But that doesn't discharge the energy, and it doesn't help you get to doesn't necessarily, unless you're doing it mindfully, help you get to your actual safe and social state. Huh. And, I, and I think we can do things that are coping traditionally, but do it in a very mindful way, so that we are actually feeling, "Oh, my breathing did get lighter. You know, my heartbeat did calm down. my thoughts are calmer. Hmm. Like I did this thing more mindfully and I was really in the moment and that helped me kind of actually settle instead of just coping with the energy within me until the next time.
0: Right. So you mentioned, um, co-regulation earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. can you just, um, define that for our listeners real quick?
1: Um, co-regulation is the interaction between two nervous systems, between two people, but specifically one of those nervous systems, one of those people has to be in a safe and social state. So if you have two people who are in a dysregulated state, like a down the ladder kind of place, that's not co-regulation. That's just two people in a dysregulated state. But if you have, (laughs) which I'm sure happens a lot, right? Oh, yeah. But, But if you have someone who like a ther- like you know this is what the heart of therapy if you have someone who's in a safe and social ideally safe and social state who can hold that while also sitting with your dysregulated state and, and provide cues of safety like smiles and vocal prosody and uh, gentle eye contact if you if a person in a safe and social state can give those out to someone in a dysregulated state that just that alone could help them climb their way up the ladder right. into their own safe and social state.
0: Mm.
1: It could, it, and we don't. I don't want to put all of the responsibility on the other person. Sure. But it, it, as far as therapy goes, it's a big piece, big big piece of the puzzle of why therapy works. And we like what helps in therapy. Like all the techniques are great, but we know study after study that that what really really helps is the therapeutic relationship. And the therapeutic relationship. If you don't have that, I don't think the other techniques work. But the therapeutic relationship fundamentally is connecting to a safe person. Right. Someone who's a co-regulator.
0: Mm. Something that I've noticed um, in in circles or in friend groups or in one-on-one relationships where um, often both of the people or the more than one person who are involved in that group or community are traumatized it seems that co-regulation is is a challenge because so often um mm-hmm. someone else's someone else going down the polyvagal ladder can sort of trigger the other to follow them totally or yeah just when you're not able to offer that safe and social nest to someone else then it can make it can make intimacy difficult i've noticed
1: Totally. Uh, It does. And I think what we settle for in friendships and relationships is not, excuse me, is not someone who is safe, but someone who is good enough. I'll put it that way. mm. But specifically, I might not feel safe and connected and soothed and loving with this person, but I feel something like those things, but I also feel protected. So I'm more like a defensive flight fight place and this person I'm with helps to alleviate that. That doesn't mean that, they're actually, that the person is actually in their safe and social state, the person who needs that. Does that make sense?
0: Mm, right. I don't
1: want to get too convoluted. But that <laughs> it's like and I, the, the kids I work with who are, have been traumatized or are in more of a defensive place, they find friends who are also in a more defensive place. Right. That, so there's, there's no co-regulation happening. But what's happening is they feel protected amongst each other. Not safe. But protected by
0: that familiarity.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, well, they're both in the, like kids and gangs are all pr- more or less in their fight place. Sure. And so when they're with each other, they feel, this is a very literal example. They feel protected. They feel, you know, I, I can't recognize where that person's at and they're not a threat to me. So, and we can kind of band together so, like, there, there is some level mm, of protection, sure. but that's different, that's different than reaching the neural platform of the safe and social state. Right. So, there, there's th- all that flight-fight energy is still there, but at least I'm protected. At least, like, it's, there's some sort of relief. Not a lot, but there's enough. Enough of a relief. But I'm not quite in my actual safe and social state where I'm connecting. And I think it totally applies to, can apply to relationships as well. Where you have a partner, you're not actually both in your safe and social state, and maybe you're both down the ladder, but there's some level of familiarity and protection, not quite safety and soothing, but familiarity and protection.
0: Almost like that the the whole trope of "It's us against the world," kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah there you go. yeah, that's uh, well, you just summed it up in like four
0: words. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've, I've been in and I've observed a lot of relationships like that between traumatized people who really want to connect with each other. And that's the best way that they know how, um, yeah, how would you, but I know, I know that it's not hopeless that traumatized people can be in healthy relationship with one another. Um, what, what kind of advice would you give to sort of head in that direction? I guess.
1: So this, to me, again, is like the people, if you're listening, you're already a step in the right direction. My thoughts go to this can be a process where people work on this together. If you have two people who are, they want change and they want to help each other out, I think that can happen. But ultimately, we cannot rely upon the other person for our own well-being, in my opinion. Right. Ideally, both people are working on themselves at the same time. Mm. Realistically, that might not be happening, though. And if the other person's not, that doesn't give you the excuse to not work on yourself. You know what I mean?
0: Right, right.
1: So if you have two people in a severely traumatized state, there's a ton of hope there. But someone has to make the decision, I think, to like move forward. Right. You know, whatever that looks like in that relationship, I don't know. But someone has to be like, that this isn't working for me, I'm going to start making a change. You can join me if you like, mm. or maybe some sort of change needs to happen in their life, and that's up to those people. But uh, regardless of what the other, what the partner going through, like your well-being is ultimately in your hands. It's, it is your life. No one else has control over that. Sure. And we, and we don't control our partners either.
0: It's interesting. It, it's such a difficult balance to strike, knowing that we we often can't find our safe and social state if it's not mirrored to us in some way oh yeah but but it's also it but it's also getting unstuck is also our personal responsibility it's like this. you're right the the push and pull of being in relationship but also being responsible for oneself and i i feel like i I see a lot of I, I see a lot of traumatized people swing to to extreme ends of the pe- pendulum, with like ultra independence, and then on one end, and then just you know absolute overwhelming codependency on the other. Um, mm-hmm. fun, yeah, pe- it, finding it is that like, balance is, is a challenge.
1: It totally is. It, it, it is this almost paradox of we kind of do need safe relationships and co-regulation, but at the same time, we can't sit around and wait for those. Mm. so if, if you're aware if you're enough aware of like there's a problem here and I don't have a co-regulator in my life it, it is ultimately I think and I'm not trying to be like insensitive but it is the responsibility of that person to say I can find this I can do this I'll find this somewhere I'll, I'll join a club at high school or I will go to a yoga studio and, and surround myself with people who are in a safe state you know what I mean it, it, you really have to be creative and I know there's tons of limitations on that but you have to be very creative w- of what that looks like in your life and I work with kids who come from homes that are, are not, they do not period have co-regulators in their home mm. so they can come to school and school is their best place to get co-regulation <laughs> sure and it, it's sad but it's also really nice that they have a place to go to so not, and I'm talking about like besides me as a therapist, they have teachers in their life that care enough, that give them enough safety cues that if you can go to a place that has some level of co-regulation and really mindfully absorb that it's a you're a heck of a lot better off than having no co-regulation right mm. but but you have to it is ultimately on you to be like i am going to take this in i i i can recognize this is a safe place and i'm going to take this in and i'm going to notice those smiles that people are giving me you know what i mean i'm, I'm really going to like like take in what that feels like and really sit with it for a moment, you know.
0: Right. And it can it can be difficult to. It can be difficult to kind of start to let that warmth in. Absolutely. When, the closest approximation to safety you've been able to find is in isolation, um, because yeah. like you mentioned, there aren't co-regulators in your home. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think. Do you find that it's easier for? Um, for teenagers to kind of get that, um, because they aren't full grown or is it easier for adults to sort of wrap their minds around?
1: You know, I wonder, um, and I don't know if I have a great answer. I know with kids that even though they don't have the potential independence that adults do, they have school and school can actually be a really good place. To get co-reg, it can also be a terrifying place.
0: Sure,
1: but, but in my opinion, there's
0: opportunity there.
1: There is opportunity, and adults who maybe go home to places that lack co-regulation, maybe their work does, or maybe their work sucks too, and they go to, you know, a therapist, or an art studio, or maybe they lock themselves in the closet and draw. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, they there's. There's lots of opportunities to be mindful about your daily life and to get unstuck. I'm not saying it's easy. So I don't know who has it better off, a kid or an adult. I, 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 I don't think I can have a clear line there. I think that there are opportunities for both, but I do know kids have peers they can be around. They have safe adults that can be around at school potentially. Right. So I know there's lots of opportunities there, but sadly kids look at school as a chore and, you know, it, On some level, it is, and so they dread going. But in the kids I work with, I say to them like, I know you don't want to be here, but at the same time, you have people here that care about you, and I know you're not getting that elsewhere. And we can identify safe people. And it's like, I know you don't want to be here, but like this is where we find co-regulation. So like, let's while you're here, let's, let's maximize this. Let's let's really own this experience.
0: Yeah, that's really cool.
1: I know it's like, I know we were just talking about it briefly and it's not this easy. I know I'm (laughs) not trying to like minimize people's pain or suffering at all. I I get that. I totally get it. Um, so it's just the concepts are easy. The execution I know is a lot more difficult and I'm not trying to dismiss that.
0: Yeah, no, I, I understand that. Um, do you think that, do you think that co-regulation looks different for people who, um, maybe experience different attachment styles Do you think it varies based on that?
1: Um, I would think that their ability to accept co-regulation, I think it's different per person no matter what they've been through. Sure. Or what attachment style, cultural pieces come into play. I think that looks different person to person. But on a biological level, from what I understand, this is pretty universal. Mm. Now, like smiles, universally indicate safety, I think. Uh, Eye crinkles... it's it's just a biological thing like that our nervous systems are pick up on that. And so that can be influenced by, you know, very specific subjective things, but that biological reaction to it, as I understand it is pretty darn universal.
0: Hmm. Okay. Interesting.
1: Even if you haven't experienced it, I think, even if you haven't experienced it and that this is what I do with the kids, like they have not experienced this and they've lived really difficult lives they haven't experienced they haven't experienced a safe male presence in their life.
0: Sure.
1: And, and when they can sit with me in session and I do, because I feel happy to be with them. Like I, I smile. I, <laughs> right. I gentle eye contact. I have You're not faking yeah, like it. a full No, no, I'm genuinely excited to be with them. And so even though they haven't gotten that from a safe adult, a safe male in their life, they still pick up on it. And it's at first it's not like, oh, you you know, a light switch. But over time, their ability to take it in and tolerate the discomfort of being safe, because it's a very vulnerable thing, mm. their ability to do so increases and increases and increases. And eventually, those basic things, I, in my opinion, they, they kind of tap into their their nervous system, their, their neuroception of, of safety, like those basic safety cues get through. Hmm.
0: Interesting. <laughs> um, so I have... I have one final question and this is kind of like a broader perspective sort of question. Um, but I've been reading, I was inspired by your podcast to start, um, reading Stephen Porges. Um, and so I'm, I'm working my way through the, the pocket reader right now. It's kind of a a shorter version. I figured, I figured I'll start there and then we'll see if we can build up (laughs) from there. But, um, there was a quote in there that I read the other day and I was like, oh, dang, that has that has larger cultural implications. Um, so the quote is, the polyvagal theory forces us to question whether our society provides sufficient and appropriate opportunities to experience safe environments and trusting relationships. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow, that, that really, that calls into question the way that we relate to one another, the way that we... Uh, Mm -hmm. culturally tell our stories of connection with one another. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you speak to that at all?
1: Do you mind reading that again?
0: Yeah. So he says the polyvagal theory forces us to question whether our society provides sufficient and appropriate opportunities to experience safe environments and trusting relationships.
1: That's a huge one.
0: (laughs) I know it really is.
1: (laughs) So I'm trying to like narrow down my thought on it or, you know, Um, I, where I'm going, I'm I'm putting this together in my mind as,
0: I guess maybe a question that I could ask that would narrow it down a little bit is how can we, um, in our small spheres of influence, how can we start to build, um, cultures that, and communities that, um, provide sufficient and appropriate opportunities for safety and trusting relationships?
1: So... Where I'm going is that there's a difference between our safety state, our biological, top of the ladder, ventral vagal social engagement system. There's a difference between that and safe environments. They go together. Mm. They can very much go together. So this is that's kind of where I'm going with this. They can very much go together, but what we do is we look at, and I'll say a child in school who's having some behavioral difficulties and i might tell that teacher they don't feel safe and the teacher is going to go to but they are safe
0: mm. so <laughs> right
1: the differentiation between i know they're literally safe and that's a huge piece of the puzzle that's great but their nervous system is not
0: Does in the state it feel safe
1: basically yeah like their their nervous system is not in not just feel safe but like the platform for safety is not accessible in that mm-hmm. moment. Mm-hmm. So that means if we don't have the neural platform for safety, the ventral vagal system, if we don't have that active enough, we're basically in our flight-fight behavior, flight-then-fight. So whether the environment is safe or not is connected to but but different than the neural platform of safety. And once we're in that neural platform, that student can pay attention. They can use problem solving, critical thinking. They can make eye contact. They can um, enjoy life, you know what I mean? Like they're not, they can focus. They can do the work. They can collaborate with their peers. But But if they don't have access to their safety state, none of those things happen really. So it's not an issue, it's not just an issue of environmental safety it's also an issue of this person being able to access their safe and social state. Mm. So that, I don't know, that's kind of where I went with the question. I don't know if that addressed it or not.
0: Well, it seems like, I, I think it does because I think, you know, I think I, I definitely grew up in a household where I was, I was physically safe. There was not, um, you know, I was not subjected to certain kinds of, abuse and I so I was technically safe, but I wasn't experiencing safety in my body um, right. you know, because of more sort of like the the religious abuse and religious trauma that I was experiencing. So um, I think it's interesting yeah. to think about um, what would what would it mean to be in relationship with one another where we prioritized what the other's nervous system is experiencing? Regardless of, uh, regardless of whether or not, I don't know. It's hard because you Like want... actual safety. Yeah, yeah. Like
1: environment. Yeah, and uh, I, I went to for the first for grade school and high school. I went to religious uh, schools.
0: Oh, you did. And okay. And
1: yeah, first the first eight were Catholic school.
0: Oh wow. And my parents
1: were awesome. They they um they couldn't pay for it out of pocket, so they put me in this like work study tuition aid program, so I had to work it all off.
0: Oh my God.
1: <laughs> but it gave it gave me a really good education, but there was definitely that um that religious part of it that came you know, of course. And it was the first eight were Catholic, the last four were uh, Jesuit. And um shame, guilt, uh controlling behavior, all right. that was very like very, very much in your face.
0: Absolutely. You know I mean? Absolutely.
1: So yeah, they were safe environments overall. But were they encouraging of accessing your safety state? Like that—that language was even present. So no. But in in like you can't like guilt and shame and being told that you're a sinner and all that stuff. You don't exactly feel safe when those things are
0: (laughs) being said. Right.
1: Right. So looking back, I'm like, oh wow, I went through a pretty good chunk there at school, and but the environment was safe. which is you. That's a big deal. But, but we also have to have the non-judgmental, accepting kind of loving while also holding boundaries and also holding people accountable for their choices, I think. But we have like guilt and shame and blame and like that, that really sends someone down the ladder into a more flight place, I think. Or even farther.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much, Justin, for you're being welcome. on the podcast. I'm so excited to kind of, and I'm I'm truly so grateful that you are making this very um, heady, academic, scientific information really accessible to um, beginner listeners. Um, I think it's I think it's important work that you're doing. Um, where can people find you on the internet? Get involved in, um, you know in your podcast, in the conversations that you host, where do you recommend?
1: I recommend, well, the polyvagal podcast, it's called the polyvagal podcast. That's available everywhere. Uh, Polyvagal podcast. And my biggest social media presence is Instagram and it's uh, at Justin LMFT. I also have my website with a blog, and uh, there's a number of fun things I'm doing, uh, trying to get a really big conversation going around some of these therapy and trauma pieces. Yeah. And and one of the things, if I hopefully you don't mind me saying, it, and plugging here is, yeah, um, do it. I'm doing something called a Therapeer Content Event. Have you seen me announce that yet?
0: I did. I did on uh, okay. Instagram Live yesterday or the day before. Yeah. So.
1: It's yeah. Nice. So it's called Therapeer Content Event, and the goal is to get as many. I call them therapist. So as many therapists or anyone in the like wellness profession to blog or create content around the same question. And the, f- oh. the question that I'm... I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I think for potential clients, no matter who they... Not my potential clients, but just potential yeah. clients in general. Yeah. That to hear new, hopefully numerous viewpoints on the same question I think is going to be really helpful I, my hope is it's super helpful and the, the question for this one is the, this is my first time we're doing i uh, hope hopefully do more but the question is is telling the trauma story necessary for treatment mm. and so I, i'm hoping that we get a note it is i know i can't wait to see what people say
0: well i have so a I'm lot of therapist get, friends so i will i will let them know awesome. to, to sort of sound off about that
1: yeah, if they just um, DM me or, yeah, just DM me on Instagram and say, hey, I want in, there's a PDF that I send them with information on, on it on how to enter and how I link to Like, it's basically, it's, uh, what do they used to call them way back in the day? Like, link circles or link rings oh. or something like
0: that? <laughs> right.
1: That's basically what this is. I'm going to link everything at my site so that there's a central hub for all of these. Um, entries. And I, I'm hoping we have a pretty good turnout. A lot of people have shown interest in it. I'm really excited about it.
0: That's so exciting. Yeah. I'll, I'll yeah. send, I'll send folks your way.
1: Thank you. All and right. thank you for having me on by the way.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, I'm really grateful to, to have this conversation and I've been fangirling about the podcast. I will continue to, and, um, thank you. hopefully we'll continue to be in conversation. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. Oof, okay, that was a lot, Um, but I believe in us. Um, I want to continue this conversation because I feel like we gave you some cool tidbits and now we need to go out into the world, we need to work this shit out, we need to see how it all plays into our lives, into our numbers, into our interactions with the people around us. So hit me up on Twitter, at Hannah Posh, H-A-N-N-A-H-P-A-A-S-C-H, and let's talk about what respect and control look like in both our parenting relationships, in our reparenting relationships with our younger selves, and how that plays out. Hit me up. Let's keep the conversation rolling, folks. I'm excited. We out.